everybody. Welcome to today's episode of To Be Determined. Today we are talking about Isaac Asimov's 1956 short story, The Dead Past. I'm Bill Williamson, and I am here with Dan Cam. Good afternoon or evening, depending on where you might be in the world. So, Dan, lead us into this. The the Dead Past. What's a what's a quick kind of soundbite to to start us off thinking about what the story's about? Well, the the interesting thing about the Dead Past, in my opinion, is it's one of the few science fiction stories that actually looks at time travel and, and time viewing in a completely different way than pretty much everybody else has and continues to do. Uh, for those of you who, like us, are probably well familiar with all the different time travel stories, movies, books, and tropes that have been thrown out there, uh, they almost invariably deal with sending people through time or sending objects through time, which one would think is a fairly difficult technological endeavor, whereas this story revolves around a technological achievement which is sort of limited to viewing and seeing time, and that actually seems to be much more reasonable if you think about the, the progression of technology. And the real question for the story is, how do you look at that technology and how do you integrate it into our existing society, or should you? Everybody loves a good time travel story, it seems, in science fiction. We've got entire series that are built around it, like Doctor Who, who's not, who's not only traveling through time, but through dimensional space as well. You know, you've got... You've got stories like The Terminator. You've got stories like Timeline. You've got... You've got Continuum. You've got The Travelers. You know, and, and whether it's a television show, whether it's a movie, you know, we've we've had a, a long cultural engagement with the notion, like you said, of traveling through time. And, yeah, I, I'm completely on board with your observation about Asimov that, that it's it's an interesting thing to throw out there. What if we develop the, the technology just to, to peruse time, to watch and to see what has come before. We can answer all the questions that we say that we want to answer, but we don't deal with what we, th- at least this is, this is how he begins the story. You don't think you have all of those nasty little things that you have to deal with, the repercussions that come along with the ability to travel through time if you're just peeking around. Why, we can just look back and see how things really happened and mystery solved we go on with life happy and not really thinking of all the ways that we can abuse the power like you're just thinking to yourself yeah that's how we see how stonehenge was built we don't have to have 50 discovery channel shows on hey this could possibly be how stonehenge was built because we can just is look. that an alien on top of the pyramid <laughs> <laughs> no that's just a skunk <laughs> so yeah, I think it's a fascinating concept to to throw at the readers. And I know, like, I hadn't read this story in a long time, and I'd, I'd actually completely forgotten about it. I, I, I read it so many years ago that... It was in the dead that's past right. for you. And, and I needed a chronoscope to go back and see when I actually read it and to see what I thought. You know, the, I'm surprised, actually, reading it again now, that no one has ever picked this story up and done something with it. Either the story itself or the concepts behind it could be grown into, well, a lot of different kinds of things. I mean, in terms of our, our media. True. Yeah, and, and so why? I don't know why. Not Maybe there's a grand conspiracy just like in the story. <laughs> 
That's to right. suppress it. Maybe we're the only two people who know this story exists. And somebody's going to come back in time because they saw us recording this, and, and you know we'll never get to release it. So, yeah, if you're hearing this, I guess they didn't kill us. Or put us in prison. <laughs> and watch out for the black helicopters. That's right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the elements of the story that, that kind of drive the story. You know, as we were chatting about it before we pushed record, one of the things we were, we were calling attention to was that, you know, Asimov is one of those writers where there aren't as many, like, quotable quotes. Like, yeah, I underlined some passages in preparation for thinking about it and talking about it, but it's not quite the same. Is He's not as lyrical, say, so to speak, as some other writers but you absolutely yes, he's much more of a world builder. Yes, absolutely, and and it's it's all about the concepts and the big arcs, and and yeah, there's interesting characters. We learn just enough about them to understand the kind of person that we're dealing with. But he's much more interested in establishing things like motive and in background. Yes, society. Yeah, so he's he's more like he's a world builder is an excellent phrase for it. Before we get too far into it. And, and in reference to that, that Asimov simplicity of things, let's introduce the characters, because there are really only four principal characters, each of which we'll, we'll deal with in, in a more detailed way, way later. But so we have Thaddeus Ehrman is the first character that we meet, who is a representative of the, go- of the government's um, office that deals with time. We have Professor Arnold Potterly. We have his wife, Caroline Potterly. And... Arnold Potterly brings in, uh, through a faculty mixer, a new professor or a new instructor, I should say, at the university that he teaches at, a physicist named Jonas Foster. Asimov casts us as readers and his characters as members of some future society that are looking back on their past, which of course includes our past. And, and when and a couple of different characters say at different times, well, you remember what it was like back in the 20th century. Like, we're living in some sort of chaotic, like, unruly, completely... Wild west. Yeah, <laughs> a time of mayhem. And I suppose that could be seen as true. But, you know, they've done everything in the future to organize life for us. And, and that's, a, that's a sort of dystopian future that we're used to seeing in different kinds of, of stories. You know, Ayn Rand, for example, comes to mind... You know where everything is determined, predetermined, and and there's very little op- opportunity or incentive. In fact, there's a lot of disincentives for creativity and innovation. Yes, and in this case, it's a it's a very authoritarian, very hierarchical society where your place in the world is fairly predetermined, and if you start thinking outside the box, you're seen as somewhat heretical. I would say. And what's really hilarious about that is that if I had gone into science. As you know, the main character in, in, in or the main characters, two of them at least, are professors in sciences. Well, they're professors. One is a physicist and one is an archaeologist. The irony being that my profession of technical writer, well, and they, where you started your professional life as well as technical writer, we are we are the people who don't have any expectations of us. We don't even need degrees in Asimov's world. We don't have to have specializations because we're just writers, after all. We're the we're the master architects of mayhem. That. <laughs> right? It's absolutely hilarious that we're the people who are not constrained by those realities. 
And when we start looking at some of the characters in this in this little vignette, there's not that many of them. There's the the, the main antagonist, no. who's your your archaeologist historian, who recruits a physicist to basically help him understand why there's this vast government conspiracy to to stop people from learning the secrets of viewing time. And the one character that we meet that represents that vast conspiratorial bureaucracy is a gentleman by the name of Thaddeus Araman, who has the very bureaucratic title of the being the department head of the division of chronoscopy. <laughs> and it is his job to make sure that people don't discover, use, or, by extension, abuse the technology of time peaking. Or as he puts it, service through negation. Yes, that's which right. I thought was an interesting <laughs> phrase. I serve society by telling people no. Yeah, people come to him when they want to do research that involves this this fabled chronoscope, which everybody knows it exists because they, they um, put out a bogus little bulletin every month that, that tells of some snippet of research that they've done with the chronoscope. But it's all lies. That that is actually where the the one place where the lies come in from the bureaucracy is that they're making up the stories because they're they're about the dim and distant past. Because one of the other details that comes out is that the chronoscope that they developed can only look at at most 120 years in the past. Yet they're publishing stuff about ancient Rome, ancient Egypt, you know, cultures way way past. So you, you basically end up with this very frustrated person who's trying to get research time so he can look at his little pet project, which I think is, what, Carthage he Carthage. wants to see? Um, and he just cannot get time, and he gets extremely frustrated, eventually storms away and tries to figure out some way to build his own, or at least figure out why he can't get access to one. Uh, he ends up recruiting, I guess, the uh, is he the intellectual anarchist, the physicist? Yeah, the, the physicist... Well, the physicist at the beginning, the reason that he recruits him is that he has not yet declared an area of research. So he hasn't been pigeonholed by the government. So you were just talking about about why the government would suppress this. And Potterly begins trying to play that out. Um, and so he, there's a couple of different little passages here. So po uh, Foster asks, why would anybody suppress this? And Potterly is thinking, okay... Now, these aren't blind questionings. There's a monthly booklet put out by the Institute for Chronoscopy in which items concerning the past as determined by time viewing are printed. Just one or two items. What impressed me at first was the triviality of, the most, of most of the items, their insipidity. And a little bit later he says, well, and Foster says, well, why would they do that? He says, I don't know why, but I have a theory. The original invention of the chronoscope was by Sturbinsky. You see, I know that much. And he's well publicized. But then the government took over the instrument and decided to suppress further research in the matter or any use of the machine. But then people might be curious as to why it wasn't being used. Curiosity is such a vice, Dr. Foster. So that's why they published this, this weird little bulletin. Imagine the effectiveness then, Potterly went on, of pretending that the chronoscope was being used. It would then not be a mystery, but a commonplace. It would no longer be a fitting object of legitimate curiosity or an attractive one for illicit curiosity. So basically saying, if they pretend to use the chronoscope, then people will lose interest in it because they'll get bored with the things that they find with it. 
And if they're bored with it, they won't question what else they might be able to do with it. Right. Where, as opposed to if they just outright tried to bury it and suppress it, people would be curious as to why. That's right. Yeah, I just saw a cartoon the other day where a parent is tucking in the child and um, and the child has a book hidden under the blanket you can see and the parent says, now remember, lights out, don't you go reading. Walks out and the kid pulls a book out from under the blanket and is like, ha ha ha. <laughs> and the the parent walks away, has a devilish look on, on his or her face. I don't remember which, which gender the parent is going, ha ha ha, as in, I fooled the kid into reading because the kid has now thinks that they have fooled me into thinking that I have I've tried to keep them from reading and they've outthought me. Yes. Reverse psychology at its best. So as we progress in the story, uh, we have the historian who wants to look into the past, the physicist who really hasn't decided what to do with his life. The historian sort of subverts him into looking at this whole field of, uh, what is it, neutrinics or something like that? Yes. Which is the, the basis, apparently, for time viewing and the basis for chronoscopy. It's built on and, neutrino action. And it's it's interesting that you know, if you look in the background, one of the background characters in the story is the historian's wife, who, who in some cases actually becomes very close to pointing out what's going to happen near the end. Uh, she is obsessed with, apparently, they had a, a son or a daughter that died early on, and she's obsessed with any mention of her and hears about this time viewer and wants to go back and apparently relive the memories of when she was alive. And she says something to the effect of, I don't really care about all these ancient cultures. I just want to look at my my daughter and kind of brings time viewing much more toward the present than the past, the distant past, which is where everybody usually places it. So she kind of foreshadows the end of the story. That's right. And, th- and this is one of the interesting things that, that Asimov does, is that he slowly, character by character, introduces different kinds of motives. Potterly wants to look at ancient Carthage. His wife wants to look 20 years into the past to the night that their daughter died in a house fire. And Araman, as we learn later, has an even bigger vision of time, and that's why he's the bureaucrat that's put in charge of suppressing the technology. But each of these different characters shows us something about human motivation that ought to make us question whether or not we should be using technology or developing a particular kind of technology. But no one character until the very end has a complete vision of it. It still has to be spelled out for them at the end. And I admit that as I was reading, I wasn't trying to anticipate the end of the story. I was just kind of caught up in the flow of it, and I wasn't thinking immediately, hmm, I could see devilish things afoot with all of this stuff. I had to wait for the end myself. I had uh, first read this story probably mm, 30, 40 years ago, and it made a huge impression on me, so I actually knew what the end was. Didn't quite have that same issue. Yeah, it's funny that I did not remember the punchline, so to speak, of the story from my earlier reading of it. And, And it's interesting... Well, and, and this is one that you had recommended that we that we bring on board for conversation. It's an absolutely wonderful choice because, like you said, I mean, all the things we've been talking about today that are so different about how it deals with time. And there's a little bit of misdirection, I think, in the story as well oh, yeah. because a lot of this, well, maybe not a lot of it, but one of the underlying currents, as we talked about before, is 
it's sort of set up as you know the little guy against the bureaucracy. It's the underdog. It's the guy trying to uncover the grand conspiracy, trying to you know get the secrets out into the world. Which you know we've all seen you know hundreds of stories and movies about basically the exact same thing. So you sort of get the idea that part of the story is is aiming toward fulfilling that for the reader as opposed to dealing with the issues of time travel, which turns out to be the actual crux of the story. If you let yourself just kind of fall into the flow of the characters, so the, the two professors who develop the, the, the time scope on their own, independent of, of the government research, just from, from piecing things together and, and doing new research, you know, there's the you want to celebrate their accomplishment and then and then when they 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 get caught up in doing something that's that's unethical and outside of their areas of study they're the intellectual anarchists and so we're building up this sort of energy around them you're rooting for them yes and you know if you just take at face value potterly's wife caroline wanting to you know wanting to see her daughter again she's she's you know, it seems that on the surface a harmless enough thing. Oh, I want to see my daughter wiggle and, and be able to, to, to look. But it's Mr. Potterly is the one who sees in her through his insights into her psyche, you know, into her psyche. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. A danger in her becoming obsessed with that past. And so this is the first time that we start to see the possibility that this is a technology that could become negative. Not necessarily used for ill purposes, but that she would become caught up in the past, and he's concerned that he'll lose her, that he'll that she'll lose herself to reliving three years, twenty years from their past, just reliving those three years over and over again. And there's certainly plenty of precedent for that in our society, where there's people who are obsessed with their own past and you know couldn't let it go and would simply sit there and like relive the best moments of their life over and over again and never bother interacting with what's around them in the present. Certainly there are people who, who seem caught up in their own former days, whether that's through social media or the stories that they tell over beer or reliving their glory days as athletes through their children and so on. I mean, of course that's a, that's a cultural trope that we could be playing out. But this is more than that, of course. His fear is that she'll just become completely so caught up in reliving that past and re-watching that past, re-experiencing that past, that she'll never come back to the present. So as the story progresses a little farther, um, you can probably hear where we're going to go with this, is that indeed they do rediscover the secrets of the chronoscope, the secrets of neutrinics, and they eventually end up building their own, essentially, in their garage or apartment or wherever it is they happen to be living and yeah garage or basement i can't remember which and they come up with this you know grand plan for how they're going to make sure this this research is never suppressed again there's all of these you know sort of you know bait and switch techniques where they're going to make sure we're going to get the story out one way or another with various people including the the technical writer who happens to be part of the story and using him or some of his contacts to get the story out to make sure the government can never monopolize or, or hide any of this information again. Well, and you know, we've got to remember that there's that key moment in the story where at first they're, they're both really excited about what the possibilities of, of the technology would be and about making sure that everybody has access to their, to their own chronoscope and, and you know, sharing like the, 
the sort of popular mechanics version of it so that everybody can build their own and start looking around. And then there's this moment of recognition on the part of Dr. Potterly where he starts to realize the implications of his wife having her own chronoscope that go beyond just her reliving moments with their daughter, that there's some very specific and potentially damning things, details in there that pertain to him. And specifically... That that point where it becomes personal for him. Yeah, and it isn't until he gets to that moment where he starts to think... Oh no! That now, now he's he's having second thoughts about whether or not this technology should be out there. But it's it's a very very personal reason. He, he starts off thinking these grand societal thoughts, and everybody should have this. So this should not be a suppressed technology. And now it starts to register with him that yeah, there's a problem. Affect me, right? And, <laughs> and, and more specifically, so, right? His, you know, he's thinking about, and I don't know if you already mentioned it. It's the part where he kind of confesses that he may have actually had a role in the fire that killed their daughter. And he's pretty much afraid, oh my goodness, what's going to happen if my wife has her chronoscope and sees me as the person that, that killed their daughter? What's that going to do to him? What's, gonna, what's that going to do to their relationship? Right. And this is the moment where like early on, one of the weird little details is that he refuses a cigarette and that it's an awkward moment. And now we understand why, because he realizes despite it being such a almost a ritualistic habit for him to stub out his cigarette before he does certain things, he's now wondering, or he's always worried that he was the cause of the house fire, that he left his cigarette burning and then left and, and he couldn't rescue his daughter and that she was dead before he could get to her and rescue her from the fire. And if that's indeed true, which he fears it is, now his wife has got to understand that and all of these built-up emotions that she has years of guilt about not being home when her daughter died. Now she's going to have someone to blame potentially other than herself. And Potterly is really worried about the implications of that. And and at that point in time, his motivation completely flips from, hey, let's get this to everybody to maybe we shouldn't have done this in the first place. But Foster, of course, not having this, you know, this particular problem is still on the track of the knowledge out in the world is much more important than what's going to be done with it. And so we've got all of this stuff set up. And the grand conclusion of the story brings everybody back together, literally into the same room. So the the tech writer, well, actually, the, the government bureaucrat shows up, having used the chronoscope, knowing that people were poking around in time research and started looking into their immediate pasts. Because that, of course, becomes the kicker, is he asks the question, so when does the past begin? And how do we know what is in the past? And so the phrase that's been used over and over again in the story up to this point is the dead past, thinking of it as the dim and distant past. And now he says, think of the implications of the past being one microsecond ago or a handful of microseconds ago. How do we know that we are in the past if if we're viewing it real time and we're only going back a few seconds? And essentially saying that we have created a device that allows anybody to spy on anybody, anywhere, anytime, doing anything for all of eternity. Well, at least for the last 120 years. Well, at least for the last 120 years. Which is all that really matters because there's nobody on the earth that's older than that. So they begin playing out the possibilities of there being no secrets, there being no privacy, there being no limits to what you can find out, what you can learn, 
not necessarily in the traditional sense of knowledge, but in the very real sense of human action, human motive. You want to spy on somebody? Yep, you can spy on anybody doing anything anytime you want, whether they're your next-door neighbor, you're a celebrity, and anybody can be doing the exact same thing to you. And you have no idea that it's happening. And that's actually one of the interesting elements of the technology then is that it allows you to not look necessarily just where you are, but to pick a geographic location anywhere in the last 120 years from one second to 120 years and observe. And then, of course, as they say, to observe in real time once you pick your moment of beginning. But, yeah, there are no limits. Any, any place that we can see, well, you know, it doesn't explore. Does it, does it just mean the Earth? It's never really, yeah, they never really stated that. Of course, by extension, it means no. It would be anywhere in the universe, but they don't really look at that. Well, actually, thinking about this, if the, if the time viewer can look 120 years into the past, then I guess logically you could look 120 light years from Earth in any direction. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Yeah, I think you're right. That, that absolutely does make sense. I mean, so presumably, if you want to look at the, the positive turn, wow, we could look to see if there's intelligent life anywhere else in the universe. It's an interesting thought. And currently, I'm mean, currently, it, of course, it's not part of the, the, the story that he's, he's not, like, focusing our attention in that way. But, you know, the thing that we've been building toward is, you know, looking at the combination of science and motive that... This is why we write about these kinds of things. This is why the humanities claim that they, they ought to exist in the conversation about science and technology because, you know, you look at something like Jurassic Park, the scientist asks, can we build it? The humanities professor asks, should we build it? At least that's the old, the old chestnut that goes along with that kind of thing. Asimov is trying to suggest to us that, yeah, there's, there's, there's more to it than that. And in this particular story, the phrase comes out, I suppose there's no way of putting the mushroom cloud back into that nice, shiny uranium sphere. <laughs> That's right. And indeed, there is not. So, so now they're basically creating a society where there's no privacy. There's, there's also no security. I mean, if you think about it, if I can see you, I can watch you typing your password into your bank accounts. I can see everything you see. You know, how do you have any type of security anymore? Right. And so as the true climax of the story comes to be, the technical writer crashes back into the room, knowing that his nephew is in trouble somehow because of the implication of, of different things. He, he sent him a packet of information, and the information, of course, is basically leading people, anyone, as it turns out, Anyone with a reasonable amount of intellect can create their own chronoscope with a couple of basic pieces of knowledge, is the, is the concept, and, and he's written it up. And he's put it in an envelope and put it in a safe deposit box, that classic thing from all thrillers. If you kill me, <laughs> the information's going to get out. The old safe deposit box. Well, and the government officials, of course, think, oh, no problem. We went to the safe deposit box and emptied it. But then it's funny because it's everyone's got to one-up somebody else. And so the tech writer says, yeah, but I knew that you were going to, I knew that you knew that you know the gen, <laughs> that kind of a thing. And he goes to the safety deposit box and, and gets the information before because they weren't watching him. They were watching his nephew. 
So he, of course, does the classic thriller thing of distributing the information to, was it five or 15 of his publisher friends who immediately turned and told all of their friends. Thus ensuring that the information is out there and can never be brought back. Needless to say, this makes the government bureaucrat very unhappy. And in fact, he starts to talk about how they all took it all for granted that the government was stupidly bureaucratic, vicious, tyrannical, given to suppressing research for the hell of it. It never occurred to any of you that we were trying to protect mankind as best we could. That's right. And so he comes along thinking, no worries, we'll just deal with it. And then he figures out, oh no, the cat is out of the box, so to speak. And Airman at the end um, says, yep, I agree, it's too late. What kind of world we'll have from now on, I don't know. I can't tell. But the world we know has been destroyed completely. Until now, every custom, every habit, every tiniest way of life has always taken a certain amount of privacy for granted. But that's all gone now. (laughs) Then my favorite line from the whole thing. um, He says, you've created a new world among the three of you. I congratulate you. And here we go. Happy goldfish bowl to you, to me, to everyone. And may each of you fry in hell forever. End of story. Yeah, that literally is how it ends. Arrest rescinded. So he's shown up to arrest them and he's like, yeah, screw it. No point now. But, yeah, I mean, it is interesting, right? As we mentioned before, the the storyline is set up with these three people kind of railing against the oppressive government, bureaucratic society, trying to suppress research. And it, it, it sucks you into being on their side because that's what we've all been programmed to do. Always assuming that the government is bad. Right. They're always going to you know, do the wrong thing. And here's, you you get to the end of the story and you think to yourself, hmm, maybe I should have sided with the government guy. I don't really know now what to think. They had a reason all along. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that we tend to, you know, the the government becomes represented, especially in science fiction, Not, not exclusively, but especially it seems, you know, as the faceless, nameless, you know the 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 men in black, so to speak. You know, it, it's just an interchangeable cog in a system of oppression, and government officials like stormtroopers in Star Wars are never given credit for having any competence to be able to do anything. You know, they're they're only competent at being bureaucrats. Of course, you know, not really questioning what would it take to be a competent bureaucrat. <laughs> What would it take to, what, what kind of success would it be? Yeah, exactly. If they're going to be good at oppressing things, don't they have to be good at something? Something. <laughs> right. So, you know, the people that we like to celebrate are the ones who are the anarchists, the, the rebels, the good guys or girls or women, as the case may be. We don't really think about bureaucrats being heroes in stories. We certainly do not, and as it turns out, the, I guess if you make him into the hero of the story, the hero <laughs> fails in the end. Yes. It's I mean, a, it would it's be interesting. not a Hollywood ending. I mean, the, obviously, if you rewrote the last few paragraphs where he actually did stop the, the progression of the technology out into the greater social world, that would make for a much different story and a much different ending, and I don't think it would be anywhere near as, as interesting. Right. But he doesn't fail due to incompetence, he more fails because he doesn't think of everything, but he's not the only character who didn't think of everything because the people who screw everything up, they're like, oh, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. Oops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's by oops. 
no no one person's incompetence is is you know the leads to the destruction of privacy here it's sort of a collective narrowing of vision and a narrowing of imagination yeah that sounds like the beginning of another science fiction story it was through no one's incompetence that the world came to an end <laughs> that'd be a good beginning to a story we should write that one that should be now that should be individual incompetence it was through no one's individual incompetence that the world came to an end <laughs> Now it sounds like a despair.com poster. None of us is as dumb as all of us or something like that. Well, let's take a turn at looking at some of the elements of the story, technologically speaking, because it's one of the things that we do here. I, I, I was so amused throughout the story of, one, the technologies that do still exist, like cigarettes, for example, but then also Asimov in 56 imagining hundreds of years in the future what our technologies are going to look like and and the the ones that they're going to grow from you know we were laughing before about he makes reference to this a three-stage computer and the only other computer that we see at any point is one that's held in the guy's hand so there is a certain amount of prophecy there the cell phone handheld computer but a three-stage computer now if we only had one of those who knows what that could be (laughs) So just this this comical scaling of things, and, and of course the the large government computer is called what multi hack. That's right, which I think pops up in a lot of either his stories or just in general. You know, many vacuum right. tubes, multi vac. Yeah, actually, multi vac is 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 definitely something that he uses. But the the first time that I I can remember having a reference to something like that was actually in the Jetsons. Because their computer was called the Univac. Ah, that's right. Well, Multivac obviously is better than Univac because it's multi. Well, unless Uni is for <laughs> universal. Oh, jeez. Now, don't get me started on pronouns. Well, actually, that's not a pronoun. It's something entirely different. There you a go. prefix, yes. Comparing some of the technologies that are everyday kinds of things, like you, our first episode was, was looking at the Sentinel. You know, Here we've got food that they pull out of the freezer. They push a button on the package, and it cooks itself. And it doesn't matter... I don't even have that yet. <laughs> doesn't matter when or where they decide to eat. Be- Nobody cooks anymore, at least not in the everyday thing. That's kind of sad, actually. Well, that would be an expression of creativity, and I'm pretty sure that that's what's been beaten out of everyone in this society. This is true. And then there's that moment where um, where the, the junior researcher, the physicist, comes into the, like, the, the study, the secret den of the history professor, and he's aghast that the it's wall to wall books. It's hilarious, you know that that that's ancient technology, but also like why would you anybody ever have a book? <laughs> it's like that basement full of eight track tapes you have there in your house, Bill. <laughs> that's right. Why do you possibly oh. need this? There's <laughs> one little like so they they make reference to microfilm and and books on film, obviously. Then, which of course. We had back in the 50s, and we've got them now. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I think microfilm is that old. I could be wrong. It's been around for a long time. It's been around for a long time. Well, in a lot of books, and in, in, in the book on the time technology that they discover is actually on a film strip. So it is pages of text that are projected through some system. He doesn't describe what that looks like. He doesn't say where they project it to. Is it into the air, onto the wall, onto a screen? But it's a projected book. So I thought that was kind of interesting. 
and then they have their their traveling device called the auto gyro. Yes, that's right, the auto gyro express. And he makes reference to the university needing a nuclear micro re- or micro reactor. You no, know, every university needs one. Every, you, yeah. You're not a uni- not a university worth your salt if you don't have the nuclear micro reactor. I assume you have one on your campus, Bill. Yes. Just like, you know, everybody has a hadron collider as well. My favorite technology that he makes reference to, his wife is starting to to succumb to her um her obsession with their their infant daughter that passed away and he says, "But you don't want them to use the psych- the psychic probe on you." Like we don't know what this is. We don't know why it gets used. <laughs> Not the psychic probe. It doesn't sound good, though. It's pretty rare any type of probe is treated with respect in in the literature. Yeah, it's one of those evil words in science fiction. The probe. Yeah, it's like no one ever says, "Hey, let's go out in the backyard and play with the psychic probe." That you just never see that in any of these stories. Right. But. Um, but actually, one thing that I found interesting is that today, it's almost like we don't even need to have the time viewer anymore because people are doing this to themselves with social media, with uh, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all the stuff people are posting online about their personal lives. You know, it's almost like, you know, what, what's the point of needing a time viewer if you can just go online and see what everybody is posting? Well, and it's clear that people are are absolutely living in the moment with those things. They but then those people who are in Facebook, one of the things that it's really, really pushing right now is the, on this date, so at such and such a point oh, yeah. in the past. Oh, yeah, little reminders it gives right. you. And, and, and it gives you a daily report of the things that you said at different times in your life on this particular day, and then it gives you the choice of reposting them. Of course, some people do, myself included at times, um, and then other people don't. But it's constantly reminding us it's our Wayback Machine, you know, from, from, what was that cartoon? Oh, that was with the Peabody dog and the Peabody, Mr. Peabody. Yeah, right. there we go. So, you know, to, Facebook is trying to be our own little personal Wayback Machine, even though it doesn't go that far back, you know, like ancient times. Hey, there's another time travel reference, by the way. You know, but, but it absolutely is trying to help us, as you said, curate these things. And then it reminds us of the things that we've curated so that we can pick them out or t- you know, take them out and, and look at them again. Yeah, come on, view your past. Do it. Do it now. It's not even voluntary at that point, practically. No, and you see how quickly people share that stuff. I mean, there's a lot of people who are constantly, constantly recycling those things. And I'm not judging it. I, I, I think they, they, it's, a, it's a thing, and, and there are people who really revel in, in, in you know, remembering those moments, and, and that's absolutely fine. But here the technology is setting it up for us and serving it on a plate. And the fact is that we have a lot of people nowadays that the, even the concepts of privacy are shrinking or, or changing. It used to be, it's like, hey, I don't want anybody seeing me running around in the garden with my, in my underwear. But now people will be like, hey, yeah, that's a funny video. Put it out online. We live much more in the public domain now than we ever have in so many ways. I do remember seeing an interview the day that Twitter launched with the, with the developer of Twitter. And the person interviewing him asks, so why do people need this? And and he says, I have no idea. <laughs> I I don't know if this is going to be a thing. So so when they launched it, it was just an idea. I am drinking coffee. I am on my way to work. You know, and 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 people would would text these little snippets of of stuff. And of course, it's become much more than that. But at the at the outcome 
or I mean, at the outset, they really had no idea what they were doing or whether or not it was going to be something that people would be interested in in sharing those kind of details about their lives. Yeah, I don't know, Bill, if you ever saw that movie called uh, Easy A. I've not seen that one. No, it's it's not science fiction, but it's it, it's still an okay movie. And the reference, I hope, is semi-relevant. Uh, anyway, it's got Emma Stone and Thomas Hayden Church. And, and Thomas Hayden Church being like the principal in the school or one of the teachers, he's trying to grasp this whole social media thing. And he's looking at, I guess it would be Facebook given the, the time of the movie. And he's reading it going... Roman is having an okay day at the gas station drinking a Coke Zero. And he's looking at Emma Stone like, why would anybody possibly care about this? And she's like, oh my God, he's at the gas station having another Coke Zero? That's incredible. And that's just it. It began with this daily monotony on display. And it's, of course, evolved into something much more than that. But in some ways, we've got However, there's a seemingly infinite array of social media streams. And to some extent, despite them all being on different platforms, they all converge. And of course, part of that is now that there are other social media platforms that give you the ability to send a tweet and then share that tweet across all of your other social media platforms at the exact same time. So that then contributes to those streams all coming together. So it's one big mess, one big mesh. But it's all this stuff coming together into one giant stream. So, yeah, looking at that big mesh or that big mess, as you refer to it, I mean, in the terms in terms of surveillance technology, right, in, which is kind of what this story is about, it, it's no secret. There's been a ton of, of stories and movies about this sort of grand surveillance of, of all of humanity, looking at things like, you know, the, going back to the Panopticon, looking at 1984, Um, There was some Black Mirror episode where people could record everything they saw and play it back. I I forget the the title of it. But looking at surveillance technology is a little different when you're talking about time because with the typical surveillance technology, you can thwart it somehow. You can throw a, a cover over the camera or you can go back and... You can choose not to participate at some point. You can, or you can delete the data that people are trying to look for. And with with time viewing, you at first would think that, no, you can't do that because you can't go back and edit time. But then again, maybe you can with this technology that they've just invented. If you can view time, maybe you can invent something like a, a neutrino screen that can prevent people from viewing your life. Maybe you can find a way to prevent them from seeing things that go on in your past life. You know, it's interesting that the story just kind of stops and leaves it as this is horrible and there's no way out for anything to ever happen again. And as we all know, that's not how technology works. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you raise that, too, because one of the reasons why they can only look back 120 years in the past is that that's the point where there's a, well, in effect, sort of a neutrino screen where the wall of time, whatever, I can't remember how they refer to that. Uh, but it, it, it goes opaque, and, and the technology can no longer penetrate past that point in time. So knowing how that functions, it would stand to reason that someone could perhaps construct a screen that would emulate that effect. Yeah, or some kind of defense. Yeah, I mean, it would be kind of interesting to have a, a sequel pickup or another story pickup where someone has invented this technology, and the story is about how are they finding ways around it, and then... Maybe they do, and society goes on as before. Right. 
or maybe you know knowing as knowing how humans work they find some way to screw it up even more well or it becomes a way of uh, uh, another kind of social stratification that people who have enough means or money for example to be able to purchase these devices that are essentially time cloakers the elite presumably would be able to guard themselves against that kind of intrusion and those of us who lack those kinds of resources would still be at the mercy of the technology. Right, because traditional surveillance technologies, it's always the, the very few at the top who use them to surveil all of the citizenry. And in this case, it's very, you know, I guess the word would be democratized, where everyone has the ability to look at everyone, including the elites of right. society. And that's really not talked about as a potential benefit to society. Well, and if you draw a parallel to something like, you know, one of the technologies that we've been talking about here of, of something like Facebook, one of the reasons that Facebook worked at the beginning is that it was offered up for free. And the assumption being, hey, it's free. We don't have to pay for this. This is really awesome. No one stopped to consider if this is free, what is the trade-off? And it's your privacy. Exactly. I mean, no one realized that their data was being, well, that, that their life was becoming data. And then no one realized that that data was being processed in any way, shape, or form, or sold in any way, shape, or form. And so as soon as our data becomes a commodity to somebody, our participation is still monetarily free to us, but it is not metaphorically free to any of us. Imagine if this time viewer, you know, you could selectively tell people what parts of your past you can and can't view, sort of like we do on you know, Facebook yeah. and social media today. <laughs> And, you know, you're going to sell advertising time to people saying, well, here's Bill taking algebra class in high school brought to you by Diet Coke. Yeah, really, you start talking about anybody who becomes relevant for any reason, whether it is for, you know, the, the so-called 15 minutes of fame or whether somebody becomes established as a mover in industry or, or in politics or in culture or whatever the case may be. Those become the people that perhaps others are going to want to pay and uh, pay for the right to be able to see and, and who would be able to option their past as entertainment for the, for the present. That's an interesting thought. And of course, capitalism rises always to the occasion. So it seems like these things that may have begun as a little bit of a far-fetched what-if kind of thing in this conversation, but dang, if it isn't really easy to imagine all of that coming to pass... You're bringing up that movie, Jim Carrey. Oh, Truman Show. The Truman Show, yes. Well, I think we've certainly established that there's a lot going on in this story that is worth talking about and that it's certainly a worthwhile read. Well, it's clear that in their society and ours, there's some work to be done, and that's the future, and as we all know, that's to be determined. <laughs> Hey everybody, thank you for listening in today on our discussion of Isaac Asimov's The Dead Past. On behalf of Dan Cam, this is Bill Williamson saying, take it easy and look for our next episode where we talk about the short story called The Cold Equations.